This life-changing message comes to you from Church of the Harvest. It's our prayer that this message will inspire your life and bring hope to your future. Again, we thank you for, uh, for joining us. We are continuing in, uh, in the story today. Hopefully you have, uh, have jumped in and read part 12 as we are talking about King David. And again, if this is your first time joining us, we're excited that you're with us. We are in a series that we are calling The Story. We started it back in February in the book of Genesis, and we're going to end it in November in the book of Revelation. And through this, we our goal is to understand God's plan. It's what we're calling God's upper story, his plan to bring humanity back into relationship with himself. That's what it's all about. So we have made it to part 12 of the story. And so over the past couple of weeks, we have seen a number of things. We have seen Israel demand a king, right? And we know that in this, God finally, he grants that request and Saul is anointed king. Saul rises to power and he seems good at the beginning, but we see that he becomes proud and arrogant. And it doesn't take long for God to reject Saul and anoint David as the next king. Now, does David immediately become king? No, we know that 14 years go by. So there's a 14-year period between the time that David is anointed and the time that he's inaugurated. And during this time, Saul is still the king. But during this time, we know that David kills Goliath, and he becomes Israel's beloved champion. And we know that David was, was loved and respected by the whole nation of Israel, everybody except for King Saul, who begins to get jealous of him and gets more and more jealous of him. And we know that eventually the time comes that Saul determines within himself that he is going to kill David. And he begins hunting him down. He hunts him down for years. So um, we know that in the end that uh, Saul is uh, he's wounded in battle. And um, he's, uh, he's mortally wounded, so much so that um, he, he knows that he's not going to survive this. He's going to be captured by the enemy. And so um, he takes his own life. He falls on his own sword so that he won't be uh, 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 captured and tortured and humiliated by the enemy. And uh, David is finally made, uh, shortly thereafter, he's finally made the king of Israel. So today we continue talking about David. And here's the thing with David. David was a great military leader, but he was so much more than that. We know that the Bible tells us that he was a poet. We know that he was a musician. He was a warrior. He was a leader. I read somewhere it said he was a heart-playing, giant-slaying man after God's own heart. And I think that describes David uh, quite well. And so during this time, as we talked about a little bit last week, if you were a Jebusite or a Moabite or an Ammonite or an Amalekite, you were afraid of King David. He had done things that no one had done before. And he went forth in the power and the strength of the Lord. He won battle after battle after battle. He expanded the territory and the size and the wealth of Israel. He brought the tribes together. He conquered Jerusalem and finally made it a part of Israel. He brought the Ark of the Covenant home. He brought it, he brought it to Jerusalem and, and brought it there. And finally, God's people were a nation, and they had a place to call home. So 
With all those things that he just said, you know, you could see that God was definitely with David. It was very obvious. Some might even say that, you know, everything that he touched turned to gold. It just seemed like everything was going well for David. Everything he put his hand to prospered. And we're going to read in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11 through 17. I invite you guys to follow along with me here. It says, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of the entire revelation. And so many of you may have heard this passage of Scripture actually referred to the Davidic covenant. And there's a couple of things there I kind of found interesting. First of all, is just as God had fulfilled his promise and was fulfilling his promise with Abraham, he's now making a promise to David. And he's saying that that Messiah that's yet to come is going to come through this kingdom that I'm establishing within you right now. And just something as I was kind of studying a little bit about the Davidic covenant is in this scripture, we don't see that it's conditional based on what David does or does not do. This is truly God giving his word and saying, through you, from this point, this is what you can expect to happen. And through him, through Solomon, we'll see it fulfilled. So, so this is where chapter 12 picks up. And so up until this point, uh, as we talked about last week, David has, has made, a, he's made a few mistakes along the way, but God has used him to do incredible things. And, and like we said, the kingdom was prospering like never before. Its, its borders were expanded. It became much larger uh, during that time. Jerusalem is now part of Israel. Things were good. And so that takes us to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. And that's page 161 in the story, if you're following along from it. And that's exactly where chapter 12 picks up. So 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, it says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. You notice everything sounds good until that very last part. It says David remained in Jerusalem. Now, something is not right. The issue is that David is in the wrong place at the wrong time. And it said this was the time of year when kings would go to war. And really what it was in Israel, this was the time of year that the rain of winter, the winter, the, the rainy season had stopped and the harvest time had not yet come. So usually David would have led his men into battle during this season against those who they were having issues with, those who were their enemies, but not this year. We noticed that this year he took time off from his responsibilities, and we see that it caused issues for him. So right here in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2 through 5, follow me here. It says, One evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. 
Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and slept with her. And slept with her. Now, what we know is that she was actually purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness as this was taking place. Then she went back home. The woman conceived, and she sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So to me, this is kind of when I'm like, if you're David, you're like, uh-oh, <laughs> right? Uh, busted, caught, called out. So David is in trouble. This man, after God's own heart, who follows him, was given a temptation, and unfortunately, he gave in to that temptation, right? So he's in trouble. Bathsheba is not his wife. Um, anybody know how many wives he actually had at this point? He already had seven wives. I mean, he, he didn't really need another woman, you guys. But he saw something, and he's like, I need that, right? And he used his powers to be as king to say, go get this woman for me. And so David is in trouble. Um, but something else we know about Bathsheba is that she is the granddaughter of one of David's most trusted counselors, and she is also the wife of one of his best soldiers. So even as he makes this decision, it's also hurting those that are close to him that he has a relationship with. So we know that in this, uh, David sends for Uriah, who was Bathsheba's husband. He sends uh, for Uriah. And so what happens next is David is trying to conceal his sin. So he tries to get, he does get Uriah to, uh, to come back home. And, um, and he, he tries to get Uriah to go home and to be with his wife. And now he's hoping that Uriah will go home and, and sleep with his wife and assume that he got her uh, pregnant. Uh, and then nobody would know, right? It'd, be, it'd, it'd all be covered up. Perfect plan. The problem is uh, that Uriah was an honorable man. And he refused to do this. He refused to go home and be with his wife when his men were on the battlefield. David goes so far as the next day trying to, he does, he gets Uriah drunk. And, and tries to get him back home to his wife again, trying to make this happen. And Uriah still won't do it. He refuses, uh, he refuses to do this dishonorable thing. So in a moment of desperation, uh, David sends Uriah back out to the battlefield, but sends a message to Joab and says, put him right up there in the front in the heat of the battle. And when things get really intense, pull everybody back but him. And knowing that he, would get, that he would get killed, he'd get slaughtered. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, uh, Uriah gets killed. He, David sent him to his death. And so it says in verses 26 and 27, it says that when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You know, I believe up to this moment, David thought everything was good. Everything was fine. The scripture, it seems everything's fine until that last part where it says this thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It seems like he totally got away with it. Scott free. David thought that he could conceal his sin and that it wouldn't be found out. But it says that the Lord was displeased. And we know that God sends a prophet, his friend, uh, Nathan, to come and talk to him. And uh, what does Nathan tell him? That's what we see. So, you know, I love Nathan. He comes, he, he's talking to David, and he, he, he tells a story. He doesn't just get right to the point, right? He kind of tells this story. You know, David, let me tell you about this rich man. He's got all of these sheep, I mean, a large amount of sheep. Um, but this rich man decides that this poor man. Let me just start over. All right. Nathan tells David a story about a rich man who has a large number of sheep, but takes the one lamb of a poor man. 
And so how do we see that uh, David responds to that? He's not very happy. He's not very happy. He's like, no. what? Uh-uh. He's like, uh, you know, we need to get that dude's head on a platter. This is not okay. But then how does Nathan respond? You are the man. You are that man. You are that man. You know, oftentimes we see in others or in other stories our own picture, but we can't always see it in ourselves. And what we see here is that David, for almost a year, was concealing his sin. You guys, I mean, I don't know if you notice in your reading this week how quick he was to marry Bathsheba. I mean, she mourned for about a week and... <laughs> He had a new wife, right? It was pretty quick. He didn't wait a long time. Um, so he was trying to get things covered up. But Nathan comes and he exposes it to him. And so some might would say that it could be argued that David's sins were worse than that of Saul's. You agree? Disagree? Thought there. Why then would God rip the kingdom from Saul and forgive and bless David? But what we do know is that two weeks ago when Pastor Rob was talking, um, that there's a big difference between Saul and David. They were very different in their attitude. They were very different in the way that they responded towards the Lord. And I love this verse, um, Acts 13, 22. It says, but God removed Saul and replaced him with David, a man about whom God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything that I want him to do. And so we see that God was with David. We see that David had something a little bit different going on than Saul did. God knew that he could entrust his plan to David because of the position of his heart. So God said that David was a man after his own heart. What does that mean and what does that look like? And so what we're going to do is um, we're going to spend the next couple minutes, we're going to talk about a couple of characteristics of David's heart that we desperately need in our own lives as followers of Jesus. As New Testament believers today, we need these qualities of David's heart in our life today. It's detrimental. And so the first thing we want to mention is the heart of repentance. The heart of repentance. And I, I know I may not have mentioned it yet, but you guys, if you haven't yet, you can follow along in the Version Bible app. These notes are all in there. You can follow along, copy them, add your own, whatever you want to do. But the first characteristic of David's heart that we need is the heart of repentance. And how do we know that David had a heart of repentance? Well, it goes on to talk about how he responds to Nathan when Nathan comes and, uh, and, and corrects him. But Here's what the cool thing about David. As we said, David was a poet and a musician. He wrote songs. He wrote psalms, where we get most of the psalms that we get in the, in the Bible uh, were written by David. And so in Psalm chapter 51, the chapter of chapter 51 is David's response to God um, following being, his sin being exposed by the prophet Nathan. So how does David respond in Psalm chapter 51? Verses 1 through 4, he, these are David's first words. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. And then go down to verse 10. It says, create in me a clean, a pure heart, different version. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast, from, cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Guys, that 
is a repentant heart. And, you know, as I'm reading this, I'm just thinking, remember how we talked about how Israel was surrounded by all these pagan nations that had kings, and so Israel wanted a king as well? None of these other kings and these other pagan nations would have cared. They didn't have, they, they, they didn't have morals and, and, and instructions from their gods to go by to live a moral, upright, righteous life. If they saw, if, a, if one of these pagan kings had seen a woman bathing on a rooftop, he would have just had her and it would have been over with. And he would have just taken her husband out or who cares? It didn't matter. But David served uh, the God of Israel who held them to a righteous standard. He was a righteous God. He held his people to a righteous standard. And so it couldn't stand. So that's why the, the prophet comes to David and confronts his sin. And in this, we, we, we see this repentant heart. We don't see a repentant heart in Saul. We don't see the repentant heart in Saul that we do in David. David, was, uh, I'm sorry, Saul was arrogant and puffed up in his sin. And we don't even really see any remorse anywhere in Saul. But David, on the other hand, he doesn't try to conceal his sin when it's exposed. We see that he is broken for the Lord. His heart is absolutely broken before God, and he is crying out to the Lord for forgiveness. This is a heart of repentance, and we desperately need this. Look at what Proverbs 28 verse 13 says. It says, whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. How many of you are thankful for that? I know that I am. Now let me ask this. Have you ever tried to hide or conceal a sin in your life? We all have. I think we're all, I think in this moment we could all think of a time where we tried to hide something. We knew it wasn't right. We tried to just put it under the rug. Um, but you know, a lot of times when we do that, it takes a lot of effort um, to keep up the lie and the deceit. I don't know if you've ever been to that place where um, you were trying to conceal a sin and you actually physically got sick because you knew better and it's kind of the Holy Spirit speaking to you, but you're just like, oh, I'm going to get sick. And a lot of times when we try to conceal sin in our life, um, it can physically make us ill. It can make our body ache. Um, it can mess with our mind. Um, you know, many times also it takes... Um, more and more indiscretions or lies to keep it hidden. Everybody, anybody ever been busted with that? Maybe a teenager out there, right? Like, oh, you know, and then you got to change your story, and you got to change your story again. Well, what I meant was, what I meant was, and then you begin to see the lie is actually truth. You don't even know what the truth is anymore because you've made up all these stories and made this ugly mess of what is going on. And so what we have to recognize is that when we make mistakes, no matter how ugly, no matter how grave, no matter how bad, we got to make sure that we come clean with God. And we know that when we do that, that he will forgive us and that he will restore us. And there's one other thing I want to mention. Um, I think it was last week or the week before when Rob was teaching, he made the comment, you know, who is your Jonathan? talking about a best friend. Well, from this passage, I want to actually ask the question, who is your Nathan? <laughs> who is your Nathan? Who is that? How many? Okay, guys, we all need a Nathan in our life. Yeah. We may not want a Nathan in our life, but we all need a Nathan in our life. And so who is your Nathan? Who is it that you have in your life that you allow to speak to you directly? Who is it in your life that, you know, hears the voice of God and you allow them to speak to you on 
certain situations and circumstances. And so all of us need a Nathan. And so maybe somebody came to mind when I asked who your Nathan was. Maybe you're like, mm, I don't have a clue. And so I want to give you a couple thoughts on if you do have a Nathan, see if they measure up to these uh, couple suggestions. And if you don't have a Nathan, you could uh, look for this person and ask the Lord to reveal to you who that might be. But the first thing you want to make sure in your Nathan is it is a person that is dependable. Um, you want somebody that's going to be there, that their yes is yes and their no is no, and that they are involved and present in your life. You want somebody that um, knows in the middle of night if something's going on, that you can give them call. You know, somebody that is dependable. Um, the next thing, and I, I, love, I love this, is that you need somebody that is a fearless but careful confronter. All right? So we see here that when Nathan actually confronted David, it wasn't an ugly confrontation. He actually used it, used what? A story or a parable. Parable. We see Jesus oftentimes in the New Testament when he was teaching and speaking. He would use a parable. And so he was fearless in that he addressed it, but he was also careful in the way that it came across. And so I encourage you as you're looking for that Nathan, um, make sure that their agenda is only your spiritual growth that they really want what's best for you, that they don't have an ulterior motive of like, well, if I, well, first of all, you don't want the person to be like, I just need to fix you for my good. <laughs> I just, you got all these problems and I just need to fix you. Okay, you don't want that person that they're just like, see you as a mess and all they want to do is fix you. You want their heart and desire to be your spiritual, for you to be spiritually um, the best that you can be. Um, and you also um, want somebody that wants what's best for you and not themselves. I think sometimes we have people in our lives and we want to kind of fix them to make us look better or to help our job get done better. And so you, once again, you want to make sure that it is because they have your best interest um, on their mind. So look for someone who genuinely, also somebody that genuinely respects you um, and is invested in your life. And then this next one I think is probably the most important is that you want somebody that is a trusted advisor that you respect their walk and talk. Guys, you want somebody that's a Christian. You want somebody that's disciplined in the Word of God. You want somebody that lives out and walks the Christian life, that knows the Word of God, that hears the Lord's presence. You don't, your Nathan doesn't need to be an unbeliever. Your Nathan doesn't need to be your best friend if your best friend doesn't seek after God. You want somebody that God is number first in their life, that you see in their life, that they seek God first in all things, that they truly walk and talk. Those go together. They're not just talking and walking something different, or they're not walking, walking one way and talking the other, but that the two come together. And you guys have heard this verse probably numerous times, Proverbs 27, 17. It says, as iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. And that's what a Nathan will do in your life is they, they love you. They come alongside you. They help you to help you. Yeah. So thank God for Nathan. We all need that in our lives. And we know that Nathan loved David enough and he was uh, bold enough to, uh, to come to David and give him the opportunity to, to repent. He, he was bold enough to confront uh, David's sin uh, head on in, in the midst of it all. So 
While God forgives us, we know that as I talked about last week, he doesn't always erase the natural consequences for our sin. Usually there are consequences, uh, even though God does, God does forgive us. And, and we know that there were consequences for David's actions. And we know that Bathsheba's son, this baby uh, that she's pregnant with, uh, we know that the baby would die. And, um, but in this, we really see another opportunity to see David's heart because because many people would have been very angry, this child dying. They would have been very angry, and some people would have turned their hearts away from the Lord. But how does David respond? If we look, uh, if you go to the next chapter, chapter 12, verses 19 through 20, 2 Samuel 12, 19 through 20, it says, David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized that the child was dead. Is the, is the child dead, he asked? Yes, they replied, he is dead. Look at what it says next in verse 20. It says, then David got up off the ground. He had, been, he had been laying on sackcloth and fasting, laying on the ground. David got up from the ground, and after he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord, and what did he do? He worshiped. So we see David's heart of repentance, but secondly, number two, we see David's heart of worship. So we see right here, David's son has just died. Um, before that, we know that he had spent seven days praying, fasting, pleading with the Lord, asking God, please let my child live. Please, please, please let him live. We know that each night that he was lying on the floor in sackcloth that we know was kind of a sign of humility. He had done everything that he knew to do, but we know that the child still died. And I think Rob mentioned this just a moment ago, but you know, a lot of, for a lot of us, this would shake even the strongest follower of God to the core. But what do we see that David chose to do? He chose how to respond. He chose to worship, right? And so we're going to read in Psalm 32. We're going to start with verse 1 and 2. It said, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and whose spirit is, not, is no deceit. Verse 5, then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Verse 7, you are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. And then verse 10 and 11, it says, Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad. You righteous, sing all you who are upright in heart. Guys, David wrote this shortly after that child dying. And uh, how heartbreaking that must have been. But I think just as heartbreaking was his sin and knowing that he was responsible for this. But we see that through what he wrote that he knew that God was a good God and that God forgave him. And so David learned to worship God in any situation. And Sean and I were talking about this uh, earlier in the week, and, and we started thinking about David and, and all the different places in Scripture um, where he encountered something, uh, something would happen or come against him, and he would stop, and what would he do? He would worship. And so we just started, we got a list going, and I'm, I'm just going to tell you real quick, uh, I'm just going to read these to you. Uh, there was a situation when Saul sent his men to David's home to kill him. What does David do? He writes in Psalm 59, he writes, God is my refuge. 
There was a time when David was running, another time when David was running from Saul, and he, then he wrote in Psalm 34, I will praise the Lord at all times. It's kind of cool how these psalms, if you look at them, they line up with the situations and things that David was going through. There was a time when he was hiding in a cave that he wrote Psalm 57, and he said, I will hide in the shadow of God's wings. There was another time he was hiding in a cave, hiding for his life, and he wrote in Psalm 142, again, he wrote, God is my refuge. As we talked about last week, after he learned that Doeg had killed the 85 priests of the Lord and their families, and it, it, it was really David's fault, he wrote Psalm 52, and he said in it, I am like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. There was a time when the Ziphites were trying to betray David. Uh, they were betraying him, and he wrote Psalm 54, and he wrote, God is my helper. Uh, another time when he was running from Saul, he wrote Psalm 56, and he says, I put my trust in the Lord. After being confronted with adultery with Bathsheba, he wrote Psalm 51, and he said, the sacrifices, the sacrifices God desires are a broken spirit, a broken and repentant heart he will not reject. If you read in the story into chapter 12, it also went into the story about Absalom, David's son. During Absalom's rebellion, David wrote Psalm chapter 3, and he wrote, from the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. And there was another time when he was hiding in the wilderness in Judah that he wrote Psalm 63, and he wrote, My soul thirsts for God. My right hand, God, his right hand holds me securely. Guys, David learned to worship God in every situation. Any of us can stop and we can worship on Sunday morning while the worship team's up here and playing great and, and, and leading us in some worship songs. We can all sing and lift our hands and worship the Lord. But you find out what's really in your heart when things get tough. When all of a sudden your plan goes, plans go awry, things go the wrong direction, it's not what you expected. You suddenly find out real quickly where your heart is really at. And we know that David learned he not only had a heart of repentance, he had a heart of worship. You know, Rob just kind of, I don't know, was there like nine or ten different things there that he just said? Uh, you know, we know that God had said that David was a man after his own heart, but that didn't mean that his life was free of troubles. You know, we see David's life had highs and lows and highs and lows. Um, you know, some of David's troubles were the result of his own sin, like we just talked about. His, um, like all of us. Um, yep. Like all of us. Um, his own son being put to death, right? All the drama that took place in his household um, was a result of the sin of his. But, you know, sometimes um, the things, the troubles he experienced were the results of other people's sin, other people that had done wrong um, in his life. And so here's the thing is we can't control all of our ups and downs, but what we do know is that we can trust God every single day through every single circumstance, through every high and every, every low, that he is with us in our trials, he is with us in our happy times, and just like he helped David, just like he was with David, as we seek him out, he is always there to walk with us through every circumstance and every situation. And like David, we need to go to him in our sorrows, in our times of fear, in our times of rejoicing. Um, that needs to be our first and our immediate response is to go to the Father so that he can come alongside and, and help us. So with all that said, in closing, 
I, I think that these are two of the most important things that we can learn from the life of David and two of the most important things in the life of a Christ follower is to, one, have a heart of repentance and two, have a heart of worship. And so I just want to take just a moment before we close and I want to, I want to break these down for just a minute. What does that look like in our lives today? What does it look like to have a heart of repentance as a Christ follower? So you may be surprised to learn that the word repent in, in the Greek, in, in the Greek old Old Testament actually means it means to turn around. It was a military term, and it described soldiers marching in one direction, and then they would suddenly do an about face. That's the word repent. And so, uh, in a spiritual sense, it would simply mean to change your mind and go the other direction. And so, when you think about that, when you think of repenting, it's not just saying I'm sorry. You guys know as well as I do that. In, in reality, rarely does I'm sorry change a lot of things. When, when, you, when you've messed up, <laughs> I'm sorry doesn't make wrong things right. It, it may help bridge a gap in, in a relationship with someone, uh, showing remorse, but it doesn't make the wrong things right. There's still consequences and things that follow. And so I'm sorry is not the only answer. Repenting of sin would be humbling yourself. It would be making the wrong things right. It would be asking God and others that you've affected for forgiveness in the midst of it all. And it would also be taking steps to turn away from that sin so that you don't go back to it. Taking certain steps so that you don't go back to that thing uh, that you did, whatever that may have looked like. So it could be said, and I think I mentioned this last week, that really one of the greatest gifts that God has given us is the opportunity to repent. Repentance is huge that we can even do that. We've all been lost in our sin. We were born into our sin. We were born into sin. But because of Jesus, as I said last week, our bad decisions don't have to be the end of the story. Now, we've all been there and made bad decisions, and it got us down to this low place. And thank God somebody came along, or, or the Lord spoke to us, or we, you know, whatever it may be, and we were able to lift ourselves back up out of that mess. And, but some people get caught, and their bad decisions end up being the end of their story. Doesn't have to be the end of your story. Your bad decisions don't have to be the end of your story. And we know that repentance is vitally important because salvation is partially based upon our repentance. We're commanded to repent. That's part of our salvation. But, or you can read that. Here's the good news. 1 John 1, 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not just some of it, but all unrighteousness. And so the question I have for you right now is, how do you respond when confronted with your sin? Maybe you're confronted by the words of a sermon. Maybe you're reading the Bible and you get some understanding or some revelation. Maybe the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction to you. Or maybe it's a person that loves you enough to tell you the truth. How do you respond when confronted with sin? Um, I actually kind of had an opportunity for something like this to happen in my life yesterday and don't you love when you're teaching on something and you have the opportunity to do it, right? And so something was kind of brought up. And um, to be honest, my first response was defensiveness. I immediately just went to that ugly place and got defended. Well, what do you mean? And what are you trying to say? And you know what? That is not the best way 
to respond. You know, it's not to get defensive. It's not to blame others. It's actually to actually say, okay, is there truth in what's being said? And if there is, how do I need to respond? What do I need to do different? Do I need to apologize? Do I need to repent before the Lord? Do I need to change my thinking? You know, what is it that you need to do? You know, that we, some of David's writings in the Psalms even indicate that he was not only open and receptive to correction, but he longed for it. How many of us long for correction? <laughs> I heard a no from the front row. One you know, of our we're, kids. Not, we're, we're not like, oh, please, I want correction, right? But we see that David wanted to walk righteously before the Lord to the point that he desired God's correction in his life. And I thought of this example this morning as I was kind of just praying. I remember when Rob and I just um, became staff here at Harvest, and Pastor Bob was the, in the lead pastoral role at that time. And way back then, we used to have. Um, staff meetings all together. We also had these individual meetings, like one-on-one, right? And so Rob usually met with uh, Pastor Bob first, and uh, this just shows my immaturity and where I was at. Rob would come out, bathroom break. I knew I was up next. I'd be waiting in the hall, and I'd be like, what's he going to get on to me for? (laughs) I mean, let's just be real, okay? That was, and I know y'all are like, Pastor Bob? Okay, yes, Pastor Bob. And in my immature days, it was like, oh no, what have I done now? And I'm already wanting to kind of think of a way to combat it. But true maturity shows, and this is where I believe I am now, I'm not saying I'm fulfilled maturity, but here's where I am now, is that I welcome feedback. I have said, he's sitting here, what do you see in my life that needs to be done different? And, you know, when you're defensive, it's about yourself, but when you can ask that straight up question, like, what do you see in my life? That's welcoming somebody. And his intention, his heart all along was to get the best Shauna that could be for my family and for all of you guys. It wasn't that he didn't love me, that he didn't like me. He did those things to make me who I am today. And so I ask you today, when you're confronted with things through a person or through the word, how do you respond? Do you get defensive or you oh no before you already get there? Or do you welcome and say, okay, Holy Spirit, lead and guide me through this situation. It's good. You know, we need to be like David. I think David did that. He was mm-hmm. a person that sought after. He was quick, quick to, to repent. repent. Yep. When exposed, especially that one time, it did take a year. Let's put that out there. <laughs> he was hiding it for a year, yep. but God brought it to him. And when he was confronted, he didn't, we don't see him beating around the bush. He was like, you're right. And he immediately responded when confronted by that friend and by that prophet. And so we need to be like that. You know, we've got to make sure that we are quick to repent and to run to the Lord. You know, a believer living in um, habitual sin is miserable. I don't know if you've ever been in that place where maybe you were just hiding something or you were doing things that you knew weren't right. You were miserable. You weren't happy. You weren't content. You were just Probably wanted to not even wake up in the morning. Or you're so miserable that you came angry and you took it out on every single person around you. And they're like, please get some Jesus, right? Please for our well-being. And the thing is, is that you don't have to live miserable. Be quick to repent. And then the next thing we talked about is a heart of worship. You know, a lot of you guys have been joining us in Sunday school. Uh, We started back last week. And something that we have said that worship is not two fast songs and two slow songs. But worship is our lifestyle. And so we either worship God or we worship ourselves every single day by our words, by our actions in our life, by those things that we walk out. And, you know, I believe that we see that David was a worshiper. 
throughout his entire life in many different settings, in many different situations. When he was in the field as a teenager, he worshiped. When he was in Saul's court as a servant, he worshiped. During the battle defending his kingdom, he worshiped. While running from those that were wanting to destroy him, he worshiped. While a king in the palace with the greatest position that could be on earth, he worshiped. Worship was a lifestyle for David from teenager until death. And so 2 Samuel chapter 23 uh, records David's last words and, uh, and final prayers before the nation of Israel. And we see, if you look at it, they are words of praise and thankfulness to God. That's how he closes out his life. And so... You know, the question is, as, as we close out right now, you know, um, what, does that, what does that look like in your life? Um, you know, the heart of repentance, the, the, the heart of worship, what does that look like? What do you need to do different in your life uh, to, to display those hearts, that kind of heart before God? Will you be like Saul? Will you be like Saul who simply rationalizes and makes excuses? Guys, that's, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of believers today. I, you know, we, we, I think sometimes we don't stress repentance enough. It, as a matter of fact, if you go and you study every great move of God, every great revival on the earth, you'll look and repentance is at the core of it. It's usually people that came together and they repented before God. And guys, you want to see God move in your life. You want to see a mighty move of God. You want to see revival in your life. Let it start with having a repentant heart. God can work with that like nothing else. Saul rationalized and made excuses. He lived to please himself and, leave up, and please others. That's the way many live today. But he started out leaning on the Lord, but then took things into his own hands. And we know how that worked out for him. Or you can choose to be like David, who decided that he was going to trust the Lord. He was far from perfect, messed up, made, made, some, tough, made some tough mistakes that, trust me, he would regret for the rest of his life. Uh, however... He trusted the Lord, he was quick to repent when he messed up, and he worshiped God in all circumstances, in the highs and the lows throughout his lifetime. He always turned his heart back toward the Lord and embraced him. And so that's what I'd ask you. Will you choose to serve God with a heart of repentance and a heart of worship? Those are two things. If we've got those things down, we live with a heart of repentance and a heart of worship before God. Everything else is going to fall into line. That's that loving God and loving people. God can use you to do things beyond your wildest imagination. If you're right where you're at, in your home, or wherever you may be, let's just bow our heads together as we, as we close here in just a moment. We do want to give the opportunity, if you have never um, received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, man, then this totally applies to you. This doesn't just apply to people who are already followers of Jesus. This applies to you because it means that you've come to a place in your life where you know you need to repent. You know that, that you've not been able to live life. You, you've been doing, trying to do it in your own strength, in your own way, but it, it hasn't worked out for you because you, you know that at the core of it, it's, it's self-centeredness, it's selfishness that, that guides us along the way when we try to live this life without him. What do we do? We stop and we repent. We humble ourselves and we say, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life from this point onward. And if that's you and you recognize maybe, maybe you've prayed a prayer before to receive Jesus, maybe you never have. It doesn't matter. It's the same thing. We, like David, we turn our heart toward the Lord. We repent. We turn our back on our old life, just like we saw baptisms a while ago, talking about the death, burial, and resurrection 
burying our dead, old, nasty, sinful man and coming up alive in Christ Jesus. That's what it's all about, guys. And so if that's you, I'm just going to invite you to, to, to pray right here in just a second. And, uh, and I'm going to invite you to make Jesus the Lord of your life. Be ready. Be quick to repent. Be ready to turn away from your old life and your own way of living. Embrace him. Embrace the move of the Holy Spirit in your life and allow him to lead you and guide you and know that he will be able to do so much more with your life than could have ever been done before simply because you were willing to repent and to worship, to recognize God for who he is. If that's you and you need to pray, I just invite you to pray something like this. Just, just say, say, Father God, I thank you for sending Jesus. I'm desperately in need of Jesus in my life. I've tried to live my life my own way. I thought I knew what was best, but at the root of it, it was all selfish. So today I put that behind me. I recognize you, Jesus, for who you are. You're the son of the living God. You are God who came in the flesh and you went to a cross. You did it for me. You paid the price for my sin my guilt and my shame for every bad decision that I will have ever made and ever will make. You came just so that you could die and pay the price for that. And so today, Lord, I repent of my sin. I don't just say I'm sorry, but I make a decision to do an about face, to turn from my sin and to live for you, Lord, all the days of my life. Jesus, I call you Lord. You are my master. You are my savior. I'll follow you to the end. Holy Spirit, I invite you to fill me and empower me to be everything you've called me to be. Lord, I will follow you every day I have breath in my lungs. I thank you that I am yours. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to get more information about resources from Church of the Harvest, please check out our website at midsouthharvest.org. You may also contact us by phone at 662-890-1573 or toll free at 866-383-8277.